0: Shell High School presents the Radical Moderation Podcast. Here's your host, Rabbi Ari Siegel. Hello, welcome to the Radical Moderation Podcast. I'm Ari Siegel, your host. Today I'm here with Professor Michael Avi Helfand of the Pepperdine Law School, also an adjunct faculty member at the Shalheavitt High School, where I am head of school. Welcome, Avi, to the Radical Moderation Podcast.
1: Excited to be here.
0: You know, you're my first guest. Uh, this is something new I'm trying, and I wanted to kind of get the nerves out a little bit, so I figured you and I have a pretty good relationship, and uh, I thought you'd be an ideal first guest to to try this format out. How's it going so far? Cool. Well, this is it so far, so how do you think it's going? I'd give you like a 7 out of 10 so okay. far. I'm trying to I'm trying to get up to a 10. Like my Uber rating's a 3.5 right now, 4. What do you do to those Uber drivers? I don't, that's, no, I'm the driver, so it's what do I do to the riders? You know
1: that passengers also have a rating, right? For sure, for sure. Yeah. Mine is not great. I actually so am always can we worried get about that. back to then, what do you do to those drivers? I,
0: I don't know. I don't know how the rating is so low, to be honest. I'm I'm a fairly good passenger. I you just kid? sit there. They don't know if you tip or not.
1: That's what they tell I guess you. so. Right now,
0: okay. <laughs> we'll have to. We'll have to ask. What's that guy's name who ran Uber and is now out?
1: Oh, I don't gosh. remember his I name. I don't remember his name. That's right. that's what happens. Yeah, you're out.
0: That's it. So, we are out here. I guess, you know, our listeners may be listening from around the country, maybe around the world. They're on the East Coast. I was just there. Bitter cold. I mean, we're talking about 20 degrees. Wind chill is hitting you and it's in the face and you're just freezing. We're actually outside sitting in your backyard. It's under, pretty cold out here. Is it? I yeah, think it's, it's got to be like, I had to turn on the heater.
1: It was like 65 degrees. Yeah, no, so uh, I was getting a little bit chilly. Little
0: nippy, 65 yeah. degrees. And we're sitting under this beautiful trellis, actually, which uh, you and your wife, Sarah, uh, have put together. And, it, and it's just a, a really great setting for this for this podcast. So thank you for hosting me. Great to be here. Nothing says radical moderation quite like a trellis. That's what I always say. That's what my father always told me. So um, let's jump in. We were talking before before we started the podcast, and you were telling me about a professor named Jess Olson from Yeshiva University who just signed a letter that's gotten him in a little bit of hot water. Can you share with our listeners what that was?
1: Uh, Yeah, Jess Olson, a uh, professor at Yeshiva University, signed a Jewish study statement on Jerusalem, Declaration. This was the uh, uh, Trump administration's announcement that uh, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And um, he uh, signed a statement that uh, wasn't so pleased with that. They were uh, dismayed. dismayed. So can I ask you a question before we, just to clarify for the listeners, and you happen to be uh, someone who I
0: think reads pretty, you know, you You read in a way that you you try to truly understand things. I remember when people were talking about the Iran deal, and is this a good deal? Is it not a good deal? I, I didn't know a lot of people who had read through it. I think you were among the people at least I knew who had really at least perused it before coming to an opinion on the on the matter. So tell me just about Trump's statement. I think a lot of people are under the impression that Trump just said, the reality is Jerusalem has been the capital of Israel, it has always been the capital of the Jewish people, and we're just gonna move our embassy there. It's something that Congress voted for, uh, and previous presidents have sort of just kicked the can down the road, but the American people, by which they mean the elected representatives of the American people, have voted for, you know, many, many years ago that that the American embassy should be in Jerusalem. Is
1: that not accurate? Um, I think that's that's pretty much right. I mean, the, I think the key phrase was, I have determined that it is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Um, he uh, he mentions how previous presidents had made that a campaign promise, and he wanted to be the first one who actually came through and delivered. Um, and he says he judged it to be in the best interest of Israel and the Palestinians. And he also was very clear that he wasn't making any judgments on final uh, the final uh, allocation of land. Um, within uh, the state of Israel, that's for the, within Jerusalem, that was for the parties to settle. But he definitely put his, uh, put his thumb on this and said, uh, I'm going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel.
0: Okay, so... Yeah. Again, this sounds like something a little bit in the middle. We know that President Trump, for those who don't like him, think he's just, you know, shooting from the hip. And for those who support him would say he's just not very specific with his words. I mean, he wasn't declaring Jerusalem the capital. He was saying, you know, Jerusalem, West Jerusalem is where Israel currently has, uh, you know, sovereignty. East Jerusalem is where the Palestinian neighborhoods are. Um what you know or the jerusalemite arabs unless i'm wrong and you could certainly correct me and he was saying practically let's move the the embassy i think it's time part of the peace process is just dragging slowly because we're holding off from moving it forward and he felt like he needed to move it forward and again i'm not speaking on behalf of president trump obviously so what happened with this professor at
1: yu why is this a big deal um well first of all i think it's pretty clear that president trump said he is declaring jerusalem is the capital of the state of Israel. I think that was pretty unambiguous. And, you know, you got the sense from the statement that he was actually trying to be pretty careful, I think, um, pretty careful with his words. Um, now, he doesn't specify, you know, well, which part of Jerusalem. I think everybody, there's no disagreement among either legal scholars or the international community. West Jerusalem is part of the state of Israel. That, you, you can't find anybody that's gonna disagree with that statement. Even the... Um, Most uh, cogent anti-Zionists are also going to say yes. West Jerusalem is part of the state of Israel.
0: There's no one who thinks that it was appropriated
1: uh, unlawfully. West Jerusalem, everyone agrees. West Jerusalem is part of the state of Israel. The question is East Jerusalem. Yeah, I I have a friend who um, testified, works for the Israel Policy Forum, Michael Koplow, super bright guy. Um, He actually testified. Um, uh, before one of the uh, subcommittees in Congress about this issue. And one of the things he noted in his testimony was everybody agrees West Jerusalem is part of Israel. So to say that that's a capital on one level isn't particularly interesting. Everyone agrees that it's true. Um, The challenge, of course, is he didn't say West Jerusalem. He said Jerusalem. And this kind of left some ambiguity and people who are critics of both President Trump um, and uh, more generally um, have a view uh, with respect to the two-state uh, two-state solution, where West Jerusalem should be for Israel and East Jerusalem should be the capital of a Palestinian state. Kind of felt like the statement in that way was imbalanced in some way. So,
0: where is where is your declaration that
1: the that East Jerusalem is the capital of the future Palestinian state? Yeah, interestingly enough, this friend of mine, Michael Kopla, one of the things he said in his testimony was he recommended to the Trump administration to have some kind of statement. Um, in there to say, you know, somehow, somehow, go in that direction at least to some degree in order to demonstrate, on the one hand, West Jerusalem is part of the state is going to be the capital of the state of Israel. East Jerusalem, um, you know, some some sort of kind of like, olive branch um, in some way to say, um, well, maybe somehow that's going to become part of a Palestinian state. Now, how you would calibrate that? What's the right way to say that? How do you do that? given that that's really something for the parties to negotiate, not necessarily for an administration, the American administration to uh, superimpose on the parties is a bit of a challenge.
0: It's interesting because I'm clearly obviously an armchair politician. I know nothing other than, you know, like the rest of us, we're watching from afar and uh, we're uh, like fantasy league managers who are just thinking what might happen or what could be. I, I said the same thing. I, I don't know why President Trump, wouldn't have given some olive branch, whatever you want to call that olive branch, whether that's proactively declaring or saying, hey, at some point I want to talk about East Jerusalem being uh, you know, the capital of the future Palestinian state, or I also, I, I want Israel to stop building uh, settlements. You know, uh, we're going to declare Jerusalem or at least West Jerusalem the capital of Israel. But hey, you know, Netanyahu, could you could you at least put a temporary temporary halt on this so we can move forward? And I was surprised because I thought an olive branch would have been a win win, at least from my perspective The you know, obviously those who are pro-Israel in, in the Sorry, I shouldn't say pro Israel because then there are people who would not like me saying that it's pro Israel not to, you know, to only support what Trump uh, said about West Jerusalem. But I think it would have been a win win across the board. I don't know if that came out. That came out a little bit complicated or confused. It's okay. You're down to like a six out of 10 right now okay. in terms of. I'm trying to step so it up. Far. There are psychological yeah, yeah, yeah. studies on that, by the way, that if I hear you say that, I'm going to start to try to impress you now. Okay, let
1: Should I call you a four out of 10? Will that make you even I, better? I don't think it helps me get better. I think I just start to try
0: to improve. So Professor Olson signs this letter, okay? <laughs> And he says, I disagree with what Trump did. And he is a professor of Judaic studies at Yeshiva University. The issue, of course, is if Yeshiva University bills itself as a religious Zionist, modern Orthodox uh, institution, and I, I don't know if those terms are somewhere in their mission statement or charter, but something along those lines, and the vast majority of the Yeshiva University or Yeshiva College, at least the undergraduate program. Uh, those, the people who attend, the students, the faculty are are in that religious Zionist modern Orthodox camp. Uh, and you have a professor who's speaking out, I guess in theory against what the university stands for. Uh, President Berman is in a, in a bit of a tough situation in only his first few months of office. Um, what What would you do in that kind of situation? How would you respond to this letter being signed by a professor of yours?
1: Well, I I guess there are a couple of questions when you look at the letter. So I think it's tough to say that, you know, some people labeled Jess Olson as an anti-Zionist for signing the letter. So it it strikes me that it's tough to say somebody's anti-Zionist because they don't think the embassy should be moved to Jerusalem. So the question is, you know, what about the statement uh, makes it anti-Zionist? And then the second question is like, even if you think um, this kind of letter. Let's say you think, you know, the critics of this letter, they're all wrong. But it just really raises the issue. The letter could have been more extreme. Right. Where do you draw the line? So, and, so let's and even yeah. in a case like this, how do you figure, you know, maybe you've got a good statement about this case, but you know something a couple of steps to the left could be coming. And so you have to plan a statement already in advance that anticipates what's the next case going to look like. And I can imagine in that kind of situation, it's very attractive for a university to say academic freedom and we're not going to get involved in this type of thing.
0: Right. Very so, attractive. So let's let's get to that in a minute, because you actually have a very interesting work life that you're involved in. You work at a university that is, help me out here, denominationally. Church of Christ. Church of Christ. So um, I wasn't allowed to say that last word when I was growing up. Um, Do you want to practice now? No, I can't. I will not say it. Because
1: you're still growing
0: up. I will, I will also not say No, because I actually have honor for my my mother who didn't want me to say that. So I apologize. So um, let me read this to you cause I'm reading an article or, or a post um, from the Jewish News Service, the petitioners would prefer if that part of the if part of the city would be under the Palestinian proprietorship instead. They reject Israel's liberation of East Jerusalem in 1967. They reject the reunification of the city. The city is in a state of occupation. They charge. They call for the rights of Palestinians to Jerusalem and Palestinians' legitimate stake in the future of Jerusalem. Why aren't we
1: just clarifying with President Trump <laughs> what he meant by this? Well, I'm not. I mean, I'm not quite sure what you what you think you'd get from a clarification. What, what are you looking if for? If President
0: Trump came out and said, no, I mean, I meant West Jerusalem people. Would the signers of this letter, and obviously I'm just asking you to take a guess here, would they sign? Would they have signed this? Would they care? The letter goes on and continues to talk about the imbalance of benefits that Israelis get versus Palestinians. Palestinians request bur- building permits. It takes them much longer or they get rejected entirely. Israelis get those. There's freedom of movement. There's less, you know, of, of the tax benefits going to the Palestinians. And again, I'm not I don't know enough to to respond to those questions whether that means, you know, they maybe they pay less in taxes, maybe they don't get their fair share. Maybe they're supposed to be getting support from the Palestinian leadership and that's not happening. I, I can't speak to the facts on that, but I guess for me, this is something like we're having an argument about something that could be easily clarified. If President Trump said, no, I meant all of Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and there is no place for a Palestinian state in the future to have a capital within Jerusalem, that's one thing. If he said, no, Palestinians can have their future state and the capital can be Jerusalem and Israel can have its capital and it can be Jerusalem. And it's not like one, it's not a zero sum game. You could have multiple places having its capital as Jerusalem. Why, why does it have to be that once one place has it as its capital or he may have said, no, I meant West
1: Jerusalem. That's just what I meant. We're arguing over you know, something that, that could be clarified. Well, I mean, here's what he said in the statement. He said, we are not taking a position of any final status issues, including the specific boundaries of the Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem or the resolution of contested borders. So on one level, he's, he's leaving it all wide open. On the other hand, listen, one has to acknowledge the political motivations here. President Trump has a particular view as to what apparently is going wrong in the Middle East. It is not the same view that previous administrations like the Obama administration had. And he wants to put his thumb on the scale and say, I'm going to recognize that Jerusalem is the Israeli capital. Again, it's the capital of the state of Israel. He wants to make that clear. And he's making a political statement. It's not like, oops, he forgot to clarify something. Uh This is all intentional in the way he's describing it. And it fits with, in in many ways, what Congress has said for many decades in terms of what the capital of the state of Israel is. So it's not like I don't think you're going to get a clarification from him. And the imbalance in that way is, to some degree, intentional. Uh Let me add one more thing. I actually don't think that's what really bothered people when they read this statement signed by Jess Olson. I think what bothered them was this third paragraph that starts as the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem has document. First of all, you say B'Tselem in Orthodox circles, and that's immediately a red flag. People view the organization as extremely left wing. Um, They think it even manufactures information documents. Um, You from within Orthodox circles, um, B'Tselem is toxic. So for somebody from an Orthodox Jewish university to sign a document, That references B'Tselem is inherently problematic Mm -hmm. before you even warm up. And then the the substance of the paragraph, Palestinian residents of Jerusalem endure systematic inequalities, including an inequitable distribution of the city's budget and municipal services, routine denial of building permits that, that are granted to Jewish residents, home demolitions and legal confiscation of property for Jewish settlement. I, like you, am not enough of an expert in any of this stuff to just have like an intelligent view on this topic. Right. I don't know if any of this is true. Um, I, I, I've heard plenty of people say it. Right. Um, and I've heard plenty of people say that it's all, it's all wrong. Here's the question. The question is, what do you do with a professor who signs their name to a document like this um, as a member of an Orthodox Jewish institution, says this is something I'm against. I'm against what I perceive to be. I'm a Jewish studies expert. I'm somebody who teaches um, courses on the Middle East, on uh, on the history of, of Israel. So um, he does. That's what he. That's one of that's, his courses I think there. That's right. I think that's one of the courses. He so can teaches.
0: we take this to your your Pepperdine world? Let before we get to the. Before we get to the Yeshiva University world that I think we're all so familiar with and, and touches on a lot of the work, at least that I do at Shalhevet and bringing in speakers who may not, you know, be exactly aligned with our religious Zionist, modern Orthodox philosophy um, in either direction. They may be more right-wing, they may be more left-wing. Take it up to Pepperdine. Is there a limit? Are there ground rules at Pepperdine? If a professor uh, at the school would, or, or let's say a religious figure at the school, would sign a letter that went against one of the core tenets of the university not saying explicitly i don't agree with that tenant but signing on to an organization that said the church of christ we think that something they're doing is is uh is really beyond the pale it's not acceptable it's offensive Wh- whatever it would be how would pepperdine
1: respond or how how might you imagine they would respond yeah i don't have a the truth is it's never something that's come up i've been there for 8 years it's never something that i can recall coming up in a real concrete way i you know i teach at the law school over there and um, there are certainly have been legal issues that have come up recently, you know, the Supreme Court's recognition of same-sex marriage uh, being one um, that comes to mind most readily.
0: And the Church of Christ does not approve of same-sex marriage. I, do,
1: I, don't, I don't believe so. I don't and believe so. so. And so professors at the law school have said, we agree with same-sex marriage. Yeah. Or that, that position of certain, the court. There certainly are people who have taken that view, and, and I feel like there's— um, there's some leeway on that issue, like what kinds of issues might come up where the university would have a problem. I'm sure there's some for any religious institution. If a religious institution is going to put itself out there and say, we'd like to provide a unique kind of educational product, whether it's elementary school, high school, higher education, you can go out there and you can get lots of stuff. You can get, uh, an education at your standards, secular university, state school, private school, whatever you want. And we're going to offer something different. We're going to offer some sort of integration of a religious worldview with higher education. So the content's going to look somewhat different and they're going to have to be some sort of boundaries on what, on what works and doesn't work.
0: But you're talking about the law school. And I think everyone would agree. I remember when Yeshiva University had Jimmy Carter come and speak there and it enraged, uh, People, at you know, uh, professors, donors, individuals who were in the university, they said, like, how could you have Jimmy Carter, who people felt was anti-Israel, anti-Semitic? How could he come and be honored? I don't know exactly the situation or the circumstances, circumstances under which he was invited. But I remember President Joel's essential position was, listen, this is a university and there's freedom of speech. I can't at the law school. Uh, decide who's coming, who's not, if they're, you know, beyond what we accept their position. But is the undergraduate program different? Is why you, the, the college, Yeshiva College and Stern College, are those different because it's the undergraduate program? It's exclusively a modern Orthodox Torah Mata education. Is that somehow different?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm guessing, at least in, in my view, the boundaries are going to be more um, confining when you get with undergraduates, just like you teach a five-year-old something that you teach a 10-year-old. Um, uh, institution of higher education that wants to incorporate a religious mission is going to treat undergraduate uh, undergraduate students differently than it treats professional students. Is that because it's sophistication you're saying, or because I thought
0: it was because it was a broader population? The, the law school, the medical school, their 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 mission isn't modern orthodoxy torah Omada. It's we are a law school that that allows torah Omada, observant Jews to to participate and has Jewish values, but they're not espousing a modern
1: orthodox. Jewish view, at least uh, that was my understanding of the graduate schools. That's certainly true at Yeshiva University, but that's by choice. It, It doesn't have to be that way. I can tell you at Pepperdine, the graduate uh, schools are far more connected to the university's mission than the graduate schools are at Yeshiva University. It's a choice every university makes in terms of what kind of student population do you want to have, um, what are the overall goals of the uh, of of a particular school. But there's no like rule that makes it have to be that way. And I suspect, depending on when you're dealing with undergraduate students, which. You know, my general is at religiously affiliated institutions of higher education. That's like the core community for these universities. They're at a particular set of years in their life where they're really making some big decisions about, you know, who they are and who they want to be. As you move along to law school or medical school, my personal experience just... For myself personally, and also students I've observed, they're not quite making those decisions anymore. A lot of the things about themselves and their identity and their religion are relatively set, this is and you know they're yeah. they're there for just uh, to 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 learn a profession. So, so you're wanna- saying it's more developmental. I, I actually
0: hadn't thought about it that way. When I think about it, at Shalhevet and the work we do, it's obviously there's a developmental component to it. Meaning the, you would teach a fifth grade or something in a different way, or more you know less content, or a more simplistic way than you would a twelfth grader, and there's you know, places in between that you would start to expand students' horizons because they're able to handle some of that. I I think some of it has to, at least in my perspective, from my perspective, had to do with the mission of the institution. And the graduate schools aren't necessarily aligned, at least in Yeshiva University, exactly with the mission of the institution. But you're saying it has to do something with the age, meaning once students are past 22, 23, those years are their formative years of their opinion shaping around this core
1: mission, that now they're a little bit more open to a broader set of views. You don't think that... I'm just curious, like yeah. uh, undergraduate students, do you think they're a little more religiously malleable? I think about your friends or... Things like that over time. Oh,
0: for sure. But
1: but then is that the job of
0: Yeshiva, Yeshiva University to curate that for them only at the undergraduate level or also at the graduate level? It's. Can I ask you a question before we? Because I want to get back to Professor Olson and what you would have, what you would do with something like this and any guidelines, let's say you would have in term in your mind, in terms of what's okay, what's not okay, when can someone, you know, what is permitted, what would be beyond the pale? I almost wanna find that line where we could talk about that. In terms of same-sex marriage, you mentioned that before a lot of professors at the law school are in support of it, despite the Church of Christ's position. Um, do you support same-sex
1: marriage from a legal perspective? From a legal perspective, mm-hmm. like what should the state do? Yeah. I think the state should embrace same-sex marriage, and that's very different from. What do what, you think
0: the Jewish community should do communally?
1: Uh, yeah, so there, there, uh, there are a lot of different um, cases that might come up regarding same-sex marriage. Um, but I digress. Should yeah, we do I another mean, podcast, or just we, give us we could give so us the thirty whole, second? We give could us the, so do a whole podcast. Give us a on teaser. That.
0: Let's do a commercial coming up in the next episode of Radical Moderation podcast with Ari Siegel. Professor Avi Helfand talks about same-sex marriage in the Jewish community with.
1: Highlights like, go ahead, Professor Alfin. Um, Jewish institutions should not adopt the same view as the state. So Jewish institutions should obviously be more restrictive regarding their um, Jewish law, Jewish values when it comes to questions of um, who's in and who's out. Um, There's no question about that. At the same time, um, that doesn't mean that just because you have a sexual orientation that doesn't align with Torah values, it means you're automatically out. Interesting. Uh, but it shouldn't be like a whole embrace of same-sex marriage. That's, that's not something that comports with the Jewish values. At the same time, People are Jews, regardless of their sexual orientation, there has to be a place for them in our Jewish communal institutions. I think you
0: said just enough that I don't know what you're saying and people are gonna tune in for another podcast to hear about that. I give myself a nine out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're grading yourself. I give myself a 10 out of 10. There we are. So let's get to the to the wrap-up part of this and talk about Professor Olson. Uh, let me share with you a little bit about Shalhevet and then maybe you share your position on this. At Shalhevet, we actually had a really interesting uh, discussion come up uh, recently. Uh, ben Shapiro, the outspoken conservative uh, thinker, um, was actually invited to speak at Shalhevet. Uh, I think a year or two ago on Israel education, um, and it was it was not something we did uh, without thinking about it very deeply. Not because Ben Shapiro's views on Israel are a problem, but because Ben Shapiro had really been a little bit of he had he had been inciting, I would say. Uh, in his comments about transgenderism and same-sex marriage, he wasn't just staking a position. You know, hey, I don't think that there's you know, in terms of transgender, that that's you can choose your gender, uh, just like you couldn't choose your age or something else that's biologically determined. Um, he he did it in a way that I think was meant to be inflammatory, um, and so that didn't align with Shalhevet's values. Um, that that type of rhetoric. Uh, We're not looking to teach our students that. So when we invited him to speak about Israel and Israel education, what we did was we actually curated his talk and we told him that we wanted him to speak about Israel, even though we didn't love some of the ways he uh, speaks about other things, but he wasn't to talk about same-sex marriage and transgenderism. Uh, and it was actually very interesting. He commented on that, which I did not did not think he needed to do to the students, that we had censored him, he called it. Um, but we had him come speak and there were many students who loved him and there were students who found his type of rhetoric off-putting. Um, but we had a group of students who came forward and said they wanted to form a Young Americans for Freedom Club. It's a conservative uh, club at schools. And they said they wanted to invite Ben Shapiro. And m- I, when we met with them, we asked them, okay, that's, that's great, but what are the guidelines for guest speakers? Meaning, where is a guest speaker? What can a guest speaker say? What are the guidelines? What are the expectations? If a, if a liberal club wanted to bring in somebody who was pro-BDS, if a liberal club wanted to bring in somebody who was uh, antithetical to some of the things, let's say, shall have it stood for, how, would we, how are we to determine who is allowed to speak, who's not? And I won't get into the specifics of their proposal, but they actually came back with a proposal Um, And then the entire student body discussed it and debated it with the faculty. At the end of the day, of course, I make the decisions at the school. The students debate these things at Town Hall. But the distinctions they made are the following, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. There's a difference between presenting something in writing to students, that's antithetical to what the school stands for, whether it's the content or the tone and style. There's a difference between inviting someone to speak to a club, meaning not something that's mandatory for the entire school, but that students want to hear. And there, there's a distinction also between the content and the tone. Um, And finally, there's a distinction when you bring in somebody for the entire school. And basically, it fell along the lines of if you're bringing someone for the entire school, they really have to embody in many ways. And it can be a wide tent or a broad tent, but the broad range of the values of the school. And they have to speak in a way that's respectful of the values of the school and in It's case it's respect and 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 uh, and listening to the other position not mocking it those kinds of things to a club We don't necessarily need to agree with the content, but the tone and style need to be appropriate. Um, And when a piece of writing, you know, it's really up to the faculty member what the students are ready for. Almost like the thing you were talking about where it depends on the age and what they're ready to be exposed to. So I'd be interested to hear sort of in your perspective, A, where are those boundaries? How would you see those differently? And in terms of let's let's end off the podcast for people. I want you to weigh in on what you would do in this situation. And if there's, and if you would say nothing, what is a situation you would tell a professor they could no longer be a professor at the university at the college?
1: Um, on the high school thing, I'm I'm completely um, I'm completely with you on that. And I'd say my focus certainly at the high school age would be on tone over content. So. Kids, ninth grade to 12th grade, the most important thing, I think, is teaching them how to speak and talk and discuss complicated issues in a manner that uh, uh, is respectful, is thoughtful, is engaging, and allows them to, to absorb new information, put it together with their all, already um, deeply held views, and, and come to some sort of conclusion. The, the content almost matters less to me. And and kind of uh, your uh, your students and your faculties and your emphasis on tone seems to me certainly from ninth grade to twelfth grade to be just right. As you get towards college, I think that's when you start pushing maybe more on the boundaries in terms of content. So, you know, I think what what was so frustrating to me when I saw the backlash against this professor at Yeshiva University, um, it was part of it was you know the extreme. The extreme with which people painted his views as anti-Zionist, like, do you feel the all- same
0: way about the David Myers controversy? Um, something similar, or is he more extreme? I, would,
1: I, I think I think that's probably right. Also, I, I I worry that we use the word anti-Zionist like super quickly, almost as if some of the people using it haven't actually met like a real anti-Zionist. Right. Like, I live my life in the academy. I. I meet some anti-Zionists sometimes I'd say would you mind coming with me I have some people I'd like to introduce you to Um, and that isn't quite this like a complaint about whether or not the president should have announced that Israel that the capital of Israel was Jerusalem and kind of worrying about the allocation of resources in one of the cities like that doesn't feel like anti-Zionism so Um, it sounds like you would use this as an opportunity to sort of articulate that
0: hey guys we can talk about anti-Zion- anti-Zionism, but this isn't it.
1: And part of me is really happy that the people, the critics out there who are taking issue are taking issue with Yeshiva University, because Yeshiva University is the one that really has the ability to set the agenda on questions of what does Zionism mean? What does it mean to American Jews? What does it mean to world Jewry? I mean, Yeshiva University is has got to be the most important Orthodox Jewish institution certainly in the 21st century. Yeah. and it doesn't just have the ability. It probably has, to some degree, the responsibility.
0: I think you we would agree. Uh, well, you can tell me if you agree. Um, and the people at Yeshiva University, the new administration, seems great. I know Rabbi Berman, Rabbi Dr. Berman a little bit. I've, I've interacted with him. Uh, Josh Joseph, who's who's still there. Uh, some of the other people who are now working directly with the president. They seem, and I've read some of their stuff uh, that they're putting out on Lairhouse, a site you're familiar with. Um, and they seem ha- to really have a vision, meaning it's not just a passive response to, okay, this thing came up, this is mutter, this is us or here's, you know, this this other issue came up, here's our statement on it. But to proactively, they, they seem capable of proactively responding and and being part of defining these issues. Did you read that kind of pa- pamphlet they put together on all the events in Charlottesville? I loved it. There was yeah. a law professor who wrote something great. Uh, Eb- uh, what was her name? Um, I can't remember off the top she of my wrote head. A- Great piece. And I was reading it. I actually was reading it Friday night in Shul, not during Tvila, of course, but not during the the davening part. But I was reading it and um, I I was I I thought this is uh, this is what Rabbi Berman, Rabbi Dr. Berman talked about actually on his visit to L.A. is for Yeshiva University to have all the diverse voices. Coming forward and and talking about the issues that that matter most or that are most pressing. And when I met with him also in a, in a group with educators, he had a he had a get together with educators here in Los Angeles. He asked us very pointedly, "What can YU do?" And that was that was my response to him was, "You guys should be proactively speaking out on issues, not reactively saying things are allowed or not allowed from the Beit Midrash in Yeshiva University, because there's so many incredible voices at Yeshiva University, diverse voices who can talk about." Jew, Jew, uh, sorry, Jewish issues, but also broader issues.
1: Yeah, and I think, in particular, you know, one of the things that um, Rabbi Berman has emphasized is uh, toratzion, the importance of thinking in a sophisticated fashion about engaging questions of Zion of Zionism generally, and and here, kind of these critics who I think. You know, when when they speak out because somebody says we disagree with, about where the embassy ought to be, um, and and they're they're kind of going after Yeshiva University in this way. What's Yeshiva University going to do? I think Yeshiva University is perfectly positioned now to say, well, we'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to use the incredible resources at our disposal to show the world what what Zionism truly is. Zionism isn't about thinking about, you know, where an embassy is or things. There's, There's real like substance and depth to how you articulate what the Zionist mission ought to be for American Jews in the 21st century. How does American Jewry engage the state of Israel? That's something that Yeshiva University is perfectly positioned to do, and I actually think that, in many ways, this is a huge opportunity for them now to take this kind of, you know, in many ways, relatively small controversy and educate its constituents. Yeah, leverage this. Use this small, as you said, controversy
0: and turn it into an opportunity to produce another set of 10 essays, some from Rosh Hashiva, some from professors of Israel education, uh, you know, uh, pro-President Trump's uh, declaration and, and my guess is if they put together a cross section of ten people at the university, you'd have seven or eight who probably say we love it, it's wonderful, and one or two who say, of course we we want Jerusalem to be the capital of, of Israel and and known as such internationally, but we don't think it was wise or we don't think this is a good idea at this time, and let people see that that they're strong enough to have disagreement within the within the faculty and within the leadership. And, and, and,
1: and President Berman seemed to be going in that direction. And so, you know, you get the initial impulse that, I don't know if it was an official statement, but some people within Yeshiva University responding to this controversy by saying, you know, academic freedom. We should allow people to say things, and so Professor Olson should have the right to say things, you know, even if we disagree with it. But, you know, that just seems to be a small piece of the puzzle, you know, Yes, it's an institution of higher education. There is academic freedom to some extent, although we've talked about already how when it comes to religiously affiliated institutions of higher education, you know, they're supposed to curate the curriculum. But what can now kind of after that first wave of, you know, let's talk a little bit about academic freedom and its importance to Yeshiva University, you know, take the next step. And I you know, I see this as, you know, something that they can really do now and say, academic freedom is one thing, but we're not gonna let people out there co-opt what Zionism means and say, you know, Zionism, you have to agree with a particular political agenda in order to be a Zionist. That can't be Zionism in the 21st century, that it adheres to a scripted political ideology imposed from without. It's got to be something more core, more substantive, that speaks more directly to Jewish values. And if I had to pick one institution to do that, it would definitely be Yeshiva University. This has been great, Professor Alfan
0: thank you for joining us. Um, I hope you will come back for a podcast on marriage equality, the Jewish community, those issues, because I, I know that's an area of expertise and particular passion for you and minorities rights here in America. So I would love to talk about that with you. I, I think the position you put forward that sometimes these uh, debates are actually an opportunity for discussion and growth and learning rather than another chance for us to fight and and throw barbs across the aisle is exactly what we're trying to accomplish with this Radical Moderation podcast. And so thank you for joining us and for uh, modeling that for everybody. I look forward, listeners, to joining you for many, many more episodes
1: to come. Thanks for having me.